Welcome to the On Messianic Judaism podcast. Hi, this is Daniel Nessim, and today we'll continue our series on the history of the Messianic Jewish movement by examining what the Jewish world was like in the year of Yeshua's birth and in his youth. This is episode 5 in our series, A Messiah in the Making, Stories of His Youth. If the history of Messianic Judaism is based in the Messiahship of Yeshua, what do the records we have tell us about him? Some things are pretty evident. There is his birth in Bethlehem, the royal city of David. As the Gospels attest, shepherds were given an angelic announcement of his birth. They were in fields near Bethlehem, which would have been fields that King David himself would have grazed his sheep in a thousand years before. So there's a connection to King David, who is a shepherd and shepherded and shepherded his people of Israel in those very hills and the birth of Messiah in those very hills in the town of Bethlehem. It's far from coincidental. Yeshua was circumcised on the eighth day as any Jewish boy would have been. In addition, his religious parents were careful to take him to the temple for the rite of Pidyon HaBen, the dedication of the firstborn as is commanded in the Torah. In the temple, the young couple ran into a seemingly random man, Simeon, who is described as just and devout, so clearly people knew about him. He describes Yeshua as a light for revelation to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Then they encountered Hannah, a prophetess, who began speaking about the child to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here we see some themes. Yeshua, a light for revelation to the nations, glory of the people Israel. Wait, he is involved in the redemption of Jerusalem. So we move from that very early phase to his very early childhood. Now his parents have taken him to Egypt out of fear for his life. And here he is, a toddler in Egypt. This is one of the main centers of Jewish community in the Roman world. And the center of the Jewish community of Egypt was in Alexandria, this massive city on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea with the world's largest library. Alexandria had a large and established Jewish population that had been there for centuries. We don't know for certain exactly what their motives were, but it makes perfect sense that Yosef and Miriam, who were running for their lives from Herod, a powerful monarch, would seek to disappear into a large population like that in Alexandria and become not only hard to find, but hard to touch. Alexandria was a center for Greek learning and also for Jewish learning, particularly Jewish learning in the Greek language. For example, it's there that the Septuagint, the first translation of the Hebrew Bible into another language that we know of, was translated into Greek. And here's the story. Legend has it that 72 elders were commanded to go into 72 different rooms and commanded to translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek without communicating to each other at all. And when they were finished, when they emerged from their rooms, the story says, lo and behold, all their translations were identical, word for word. 
It's an amazing story. We don't quite think it's exactly true because the translation, if you read it, um, has differences from book to book and it's clearly the work of different translators. But nevertheless, this was a home, a center for Jewish Greek learning. It was the home of Philo, the great Jewish philosopher who wrote in the Greek language. And Philo had been born about 14 or 15 years younger. So he was a young man when Yosef and Miriam were in Egypt with their young son. From there, the Gospels tell us that the young family moved to Nazareth. Nazareth is a very small town in the Galil, too small to be mentioned in the Hebrew Bible or in the Talmud. References to it in literature are really sparse. And it just had a few dozen families, and it was basically an agricultural town. It's no surprise that people would later say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It wasn't necessarily a real uh, disparaging term. It was just like, you don't expect much to come out of a little hamlet like that. But once again, for a family wanting to fly below the radar and not attract unwelcome attention, the retreat to a tiny hamlet not too many people had heard of, with just a few families, hardly anyone would get to know them, was a wise choice. And there his father Joseph worked as a carpenter. A carpenter in those days didn't mean that you were making fine, polished furniture, but it might well have meant that you were in the construction business, that you were involved in building buildings. And how curious, then, that the famous Hillel was a woodcutter, Joseph a carpenter who would have used wood that people like Hillel would have collected. Um, They had a connection. And so while Hillel was long out of the wood business when Yeshua was a child, yeah, there is a connection. In his development as Messiah, the historical record doesn't shed light on the questions that theologians have. Theologians ask, was his messianic awareness something that was innate within him? Or did it come to him gradually? Was he aware of his divinity? Or is that something that appeared to him or that he learned maybe when he was immersed by Yohanan Hamadbio, John the Baptist? In addition, people joke, every Jewish mother thinks her son is the Messiah. Well, that might have fit, because did his mother tell him she believed he would be? Was Yeshua told about the circumstances and all the predictions that were made around his birth? He must have heard something. What did his siblings think of him? And what was his religious training in the little hamlet of Nazareth? What we do know is that Yeshua's parents were religious. There are the records of their visits to the temple at his birth. There are the records of their going to Jerusalem every year for Passover. Something that marks them out as particularly devout. Not everyone could have made that trip. Is it, it's reasonable to suppose that they participated then in synagogue life where they lived. And reasonable to suppose that Yeshua learned whatever he could there. A famous teacher of his town, Rabban Gamliel I, who was actually the grandson of Hillel, even though they lived and taught more or less at the same time, I guess Hillel would have been quite elderly and he would have been quite young, said, provide yourself with a teacher and free yourself of doubt. In other words, in order to know the Torah and how you should live your life, you need a guide, you need a reliable teacher. Rabban Gamliel was alive 
during Yeshua's life here. He was a leading teacher in Jerusalem. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the greatest teachers in Jewish history. So his good advice probably was well known and it was probably well accepted. The best advice. It would have been entirely unsurprising for Yeshua to do exactly what Gamliel said, even if he hadn't heard the exact citation of Gamliel saying that. Further, Gamliel was actually known in the Galil. People turned to him for rulings in the area where Yeshua grew up. Two out of three legal letters that are mentioned in the Talmud regarding tithing were sent to Galil and the Darom, in other words, to the Galilee in the north and the Darom, the Judean area in the south. Now, religious training in Yeshua's day, how, how was he trained? It could happen in one's home. It also naturally occurred through hearing the Torah read in synagogue. For centuries, it seems education could be purchased, and there's a bit of discussion on exactly how it should be translated, but Ben Sira advised in, um, that, that one could purchase one's translation, one's education, or another translation says actually uh, by studying from such a person as Ben Sira, you would actually gain wealth. Avot 525 quotes Yehuda, the son of Tema. At five years, the age is reached for the study of the scriptures, at 10 for the study of the Mishnah, at 13 for the mitzvot, at 15 for the study of the Gemara. While in Yeshua's day, the Mishnah was not written down, so this hadn't been written down, but was transmitted by mouth, one gets the basic idea. This is how people did things. There are different stages of study related to one's development as one grew up. Jewish education traditionally began with the study of scripture, and then it moved on to more complex material. So this brings us to the fascinating occasion when, at the age of 12, Yeshua meets leading teachers in Jerusalem. Here he is, he's learned the basics, he wants to learn more, he wants to gain more knowledge and become more, more competent in teaching and learning. And, but there could have been many stories to tell. Why a story from when he was 12, traditionally in training for his bar mitzvah? And why in Jerusalem? And who were these teachers? At the age of 12, here's Yeshua. He's preparing for that more adult role, for that more advanced teaching and learning. And he's in Jerusalem for Passover with his parents, just as he's done every year that they've lived in the Galil, every year pretty much of his life. And the city at the end of Passover is beginning to empty of all its pilgrims. Everyone's heading home. Parents don't normally have to look after Yeshua too much. He's pretty self-directed, obviously, and they know he's got lots of friends in the city. They've been busy going from place to place. Yeshua's been at dinners, Passover dinners throughout the week, and so he hasn't had the opportunity to study at the feet of the teachers and perhaps the opportunity for them to teach has also not been made available to the public. But Passover is over now. And here he is, sitting at the teacher's feet. And it's unique. His parents don't expect him to be there. It took him three days. It took them three days to find him. Because that's not where they normally would have looked, it seems. It gives us insight, though. When Yeshua could, he took up took advantage of the opportunity that was in front of him to learn the Torah. And who were these teachers that he was learning from? 
We've already seen in this series, Hillel, Shammai, and Gamliel, they were all alive and teaching at this time. Hillel and Shammai were the last of the Zugot, a pair of teachers who preceded the age of the Tanaim. In their day, they were lauded and revered teachers. People would not have known in that day how great their names would be in memory, even centuries, millennia later. So I suppose it's not a huge surprise that their names aren't mentioned in Luke's story. Um, On the other hand, it could have been some of their students who had become teachers in Jerusalem and who were well known. It could have been many of these elder teachers in Jerusalem who were these great leaders who would become the Tanaim, among the disciples of Gamliel, Shammai, Hillel, from whom Yeshua learned. In those days, pupils would stay at a rabbi's home. And perhaps someone saw this young man's leanings and took him in, which may be part of the reason he was so hard to find. Clearly, the scholars were taken with him, both by his questions and his insights. Questioning is actually a way of making a point in rabbinic Judaism. And so they would have seen great potential in him and been interested in getting him to learn more Torah. Of course, we can laugh as an aside at the Jewish guilt trip Miriam and Yosef gave when they found him. They said, son, why have you done this to us? This is also, interestingly though, the last time we hear of his stepfather Yosef. The story climaxes with the young Yeshua saying, I must be about my father's business. And this seems to be the final dismissal of Yosef from the narrative. He's never mentioned by name again. So there's a lot of theological import to that statement. I must be about my father's business. But as I'm telling the history of Messianic Judaism, I can't help but note that the whole episode also includes a lot of historical information. A lot of that information would have been obvious to the first century Jewish reader who would have been familiar with the kind of schools where Yeshua could have gone and heard from these famous teachers. But all we are told is that is Miriam Mother Miriam treasured the memory of this event in her heart. The historical narrative of Luke continues to assure us of Yeshua's character. So he says, he returned with them to Nazareth and he was obedient to them. So Luke's actually making an effort not to portray Yeshua in this story as disrespectful or as a disobedient child. We can assume that he had not intended to alarm his parents, but had just made some unwise choices. And so Luke continues, and he says, Yeshua grew both in wisdom and in stature, gaining favor with other people and with God. This is an interesting statement. He grew intellectually and physically. It's the implicit acknowledgement that as with any child, he was not born so wise. Not everything he did was wise. Clearly not telling his parents what he was going to do in Jerusalem. Or maybe it wasn't planned, he just kind of fell into it. But it wasn't wise. But nevertheless, he grew in wisdom. He developed. And he gained favor with people. That's a hint that he was well-liked, possibly even popular as he grew up. He was a developing leader. And one more thing we learn about Yeshua's childhood. We know that he had brothers and sisters. 
Matthew and Mark tell us four of their names, Jacob, Joseph, Simon, and Judah. Epiphanius names the sisters as Miriam and Salome, so at least six. We also know that he continued to live with both parents, so while Joseph, Yosef, drops out of the narrative, he is at least alive during Yeshua's youth. So I hope in this short episode I've shown you how thoroughly normal Yeshua's upbringing was in his Jewish world, and how thoroughly distinctive he was as a young man. It's in these early years of his life that the movement really begins. He's got his mother who remembers the pronouncement of the angels upon her at his birth. He, we've got his upbringing in a secluded village again. We have the interaction he had with the great teachers of Israel at this important time of the development of Judaism, at the juncture between the generations of the Zugot and the Tanaim. We have the first generation here of Mishnaic scholars, and Yeshua interacted with them. Again, we have Miriam keeping the memory of both his birth and the pronouncements made then, and this incident in Jerusalem in her heart. And then we are told that Yeshua grew in favor with God and men, building that reputation and respect that would lead to the next phase in the history of Messianic Judaism, which will be recounted in our next episode. So thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast. Do me a favor. Take a minute to like this podcast and leave a positive review wherever you are listening to it. Support to our podcast by going to onmessianicjudaism.com. My email address is daniel nasim.org and I'm looking forward to your feedback. I am Dr. Daniel Nasim and this is On Messianic Judaism. 